Jesus' name, amen. Luke 15, the famous story, the prodigal son. And it goes like this. Jesus is actually doing a series of parables, and he's interacting with Pharisees and scribes, and they're resisting him every step of the way. And what he does is Jesus loves to do passive communication where he goes around the edges and uses a a non-inflammatory example to draw everyone's attention to a picture and then swing it around to point it back to them and say, that's you. And he speaks that to us this morning. Luke 15, 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living, which is the definition of being prodigal. Reckless living, the prodigal son. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but treat me as one of your hired servants. And then he arose. He made his plan. And he arose and came to the father. And then he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, pulls his older son aside and tries to explain what love is. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. 
literally. What's left of the inheritance is left for him. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you can think back to a day when there was no GPS, perhaps you have been lost before. Last week, traveling around, I literally drove right through Philadelphia and I had no idea where I was going, and it was okay. Um, and someone asked me from Philadelphia, well, which route did you take? And I was like, I don't know, something about a Prussia or a king of Prussia. But the reality is today, we don't need maps as much. GPS is pretty convenient. If you've ever been lost, you know what that's like. And asking for directions, I tend, even like literally this week going into Giant Eagle, I'm going to find it. I passed up like two or three staff people, and I'm like, I'll find it. Yeah, I'll definitely find it. And sure enough, I'm like, okay, where's your paper? And they're like, aisle four. I'm like, all right, thanks. So there is, there is a point where I give in, right? But you know, like where you just feel like you can get there. You feel like maybe you're not that lost. Maybe it's worth my time just to look a little longer. Here's the story of this this son, who the father describes as being dead, now alive, lost, and then found. Because the reality is, when this son takes off, as he does in the beginning of the story, he is gone. And there is no knowing when he's coming back, if he's coming back, if he'll be killed. Obviously, from the sense of the story, the father's aware that his son is foolish. For him to even ask the father such a thing, he's a foolish young man. And so foolish people with a lot of money left to themselves doesn't usually go well for them, as it didn't for this story. And the father, knowing his son better than most, would think, he's probably dead. He probably did something. He's probably in a very terrible situation, which he wasn't far from true. He was close to dead, starving, eating with the pigs, or at least trying. So this son of mine, he says, has returned. He was lost. And now he is found. And as we work through this sermon series on how we get cleansed from confession, what you find here is this son within his own mind working out his confession, planning what he's going to say. And it was his confession that was actually his call to being found again by his father. He worked out a confession in his mind that was sincere and meaningful and coming from a genuine place of destitution and want and lack. And all he had to do was speak that truth. And the story pivots dramatically. Everything goes well. See, Jesus is saying this story because he's explaining something that was baffling to his contemporaries. Jesus loves spending time with lost people. At the beginning of this chapter, Luke 15:1, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, the lost people, that is. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And from that verse sparks a catalyst of three consecutive parables told by Jesus about lost things being found. To explain to the scribes and Pharisees, this is what it is all about. And so he proceeds to say, there was a man who had many sheep, and he lost one. 
And then there was a woman who had coins and she lost one. And then lastly this morning, the parable before us is there was a man who had a son and he lost one. He lost his youngest son. For there's two sons in the story, two of them with two problems. The younger son, his problem is that he is a prodigal. He is a foolish waster. But the older son has his own problems as well. He's not a prodigal, but he's full of pride. He's an arrogant son who always has it together. And of course the story would match perfectly with the context. That Jesus is saying, here are all these sinners and tax collectors. They are the prodigals. They are fools. They are lost. No doubt they truly are sinners. But you Pharisees, you religious scribes, you are the oldest son. You are arrogant and proud and you have no heart and love just for the sheer fact that your younger brother would come home and you would be happy to know he's not dead. To miss the value of the human soul. To miss the value of actually what it's like to love like God. And so here is the story. The younger son makes himself dead to the father. He comes to him and he says, give me a share of the property that's coming to me. So when the father were to die, the inheritance would be distributed, the older son would get double portion, and the younger son would get the one third. And so the younger son simply says, I wish you were dead. I would like it if you were dead now, please. And I would like your things. And the remarkable thing of the story, if you could imagine the emotional weight and freight that that would lay upon a father. To just have those words spoken to you. Obviously, probably not a surprise. Growing up with this young man, presumably there's no mentioning of him having a wife. Probably in his teenage years. Wanting to be free. And what the father actually does is say, okay. If this is what you want, then it is yours. Even for Father's Day, I will give you this. You will have your portion now. And so the, the son, at that point, legally ceases to be the son. It is though, legally, as if the father had died. That there is no father present for him. He is gone. He is cut off. And so what naturally happens is that he travels very far. He is dead to his father, and therefore he is lost. And hence, the way it's described is my son was dead. My son was lost. Now he's alive. Now he's found. Well, what the son does is he takes all that money, and what he does is in a matter of a few days, he liquidates all of the land, the cattle, any capital value, and he turns it into cash. He turns it into money. And he takes a big bag of it, presumably, and just takes off goes to what is called the far distant country. He runs off to Vegas. He goes to the place where there's no one who knows him. And he does whatever his heart desires. He just goes. And he is dead, cut off from the family. You and I are like this. We are dead to the Father. Desiring the things of the Father, but not the Father. Desiring the blessings of this life, but not the God of life. This is the normal human condition. This parable is not for those who are just sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. 
This is us. This is our default from birth, is that we want, 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 but with no reference to the God of glory, the God of grace. Think of the times in your life where you were most far from God. Think of the times in your life when you were at the bottom. What got you there? Can you not, if meditating for only a few minutes, find analogy to yourself in this story? Find analogy that you did entertain whatever that spark was that drove him to address his father such. I want your things. I want this life. I want it now, now, now. But I have nothing in reference to God. And here is Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to the glory of God, to the glory for him forever. Now what thing does that verse not touch? For from him to him, through him, everything you have is from him, through him, and to him. We want everything from God without reference to him. This parable is for us, consuming everything that God gives us. We are prodigal in our consumption of God's blessings, naturally. Apart from any reality of the last part of that verse is that it should all be out of glory to him all out of honor for the father how much of it is the reality that children naturally assume all the good things that come from the parents and have to be taught now remember say thank you say peas right that's the that's that is a learned vocabulary remember to Thank the hand that feeds you. Don't just take from the hand that feeds you. And this is deep root to us in even our relationship to God. This prodigal living of the son, consuming all these things, leads naturally to emptiness. His story goes so far down to famine, being forced to slave labor as a servant, being empty, starving, and tempted to even eat with the pigs. The bottom of the bottom. This is where it all leads. And then you get to confession. It's at that point, and this is the amazing phrase, it says that he came to himself. He understood himself. He learned about himself. He says this within himself, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? But I am here perishing and hungry. I know what I will do. I will rise. I will go to my father. And what he works out within his own counsel, within his own mind, is a planned confession. There is no right. There is no ability for me to approach him. I have cut him off as good as dead. There is no reason he should listen to me. But maybe if I go to him, maybe if I address my father this way immediately, the second he sees my face, this is what I will do. The first thing out of my mouth I will say, Father, I have sinned. Father, I have sinned. Listen to me, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. God and you, I have sinned against it all. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now please, make me your slave. Just feed me. Take me in. Take me back to the house. But don't let me sleep in the house. Let me sleep in the fields. But give me food, and I'm sorry. This is his best shot. This is what he thinks. This is how I could even get a meal right now. The true prodigal. Amazing story of a famous man in history, Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. And maybe you've heard of something, a famous book he wrote called The Confessions. 
he wrote uh, one of the first autobiographies of all Western literature, where he extensively, from the beginning to end, psychoanalyzed himself and drew out his own autobiography in a perceptive review of his life. He sat down as an old man to pen his confession. And if you haven't read it, it's probably one of those books that you just should read once in your life. He's so candid and transparent about his life. And he lays out his life as a constant from beginning to end. The book has the flavor of one prayer before God. In the beginning, he is addressing the Lord. And all throughout, all he is doing is confessing his life to God. And God's great grace in saving his soul. And as an old man, he thinks through many things. And in one chapter, he comes to a story where he thinks about this confession he has of theft, of something he stole back when he was young. Maybe you've heard of this. It's somewhat famous. And he says this, I had a desire to commit robbery. And I did so. Compelled to do it neither by hunger nor poverty, but through a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse for iniquity, I pilfered something which I already had in sufficient measure and of which better quality too. I did not desire to enjoy what I stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. This is the flavor, a confession. He's laying it all out. He's going deep in all of his past. Like that is, let me encourage you, think that way. We, we think what kind of ancients would be so, so navel-gazing and so inward focused it doesn't seem healthy it seems morbid or overly interested in your own sin maybe apart from the gospel that might be the most ugly body of literature ever why would you go page after page of just pulling out your life because of Christ because every other page it turns into a benediction or a praise of God himself as he relays one story to the next. And so therefore what he does is he's cleansing his whole soul, coursing through all the pages of his history and bringing it back to the mercies of Jesus. And so what is this thing he stole? What is this thing that he didn't even need? He goes on and he says, There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or its flavor. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, so our bad habit was, a group of us young scoundrels and I among them went and shook and robbed this tree. We carried off huge loads of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out for the hogs, after barely tasting some of them for ourselves. And that's it. This old man, reflecting on many, many years ago, Looking at his childhood, where we would all simply pass it off and say, well, that's just kids being kids. Well, you're just a foolish. And here, see, the grace of God had grabbed his soul. And he looked through every leaflet of the chapters of his life before Christ and brought it out. Didn't hide it or sweep it under, but brought it out to blossom for the glory of Jesus, for the grace of God. Lord, this is one story I would have forgot if I wasn't sitting here to meditate through this confession. And I remember being this stupid child that I did this foolish thing and I did the very prodigal thing 
that this story relays, that I would actually take that food, waste it entirely, not eat it. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't poor. I took the pears just to take the pears. He went deep enough in his own mind to actually make a confession at that level. And he continues to say, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Not because I was hungry. Such was my heart, oh God, such was my heart, which you did pity even as the bottomless pit it was. Behold now, let my heart confess to thee. And this is how it is all through the book, confess. Let me confess now. Let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there. I was being gratuitously wanton, having no inducement to evil, but evil itself. I didn't want the pears. I wanted the evil behind the pears. I was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error, not for which I erred, but the error itself. I sinned for the sin. I rebelled for the rebellion. I did it because I wanted that. Now what depth, how, and this is how many of us even approach a confession like that. How many of us are honest enough to reflect even on what we would put aside as childish immaturity and maybe a little bit of uh, foolishness. That he goes down to the depths of his soul and he realizes what he was doing that day. I was being sinful because I like sinning. Lord, that was my heart. Now if it ends there, this is just a morbid introspection. But what it does is it moves to exalting and saying, but Lord, this bottomless pit of a soul that was me, you loved me and gave me your grace and mercy. Do our confessions look like that? That even we would be, as Augustine was, prodigal with his pears even. Confession moves on. And the son comes to the father. He prepares his words carefully. He knows this is a very touch-and-go situation. He has no idea how the father would react. And if you can imagine the father moving back and forth within his mind, oscillating back and forth, the son that he loved, the son that he loved and raised from a, child to, from a baby to a child, told him to be gone. And that breaks his heart on two levels. First, anger, frustration, like truly angry at his son. And yet going back and forth to the deep love and saying, I wish he would come home. And I'm so angry that he would do this to me. I wish he would come home. And I just can't, I, I'm so furious with him. So which one will it be? Which father would he see that day? When you sin, when I sin, you need to remember the story. Because you and I might oscillate. Even if the most lovely person in our life our own child would wrong us. Our love does have its limits, doesn't it? Families do break up. Some of the worst fights you ever experienced are the closest ones to your life. But you are not God. Your love is not like His. When you approach the Father, how do you think He thinks of you? Do you know what mood you're going to get on that day? What if you prepared your confession perfectly? Would he maybe look your way again? Look at this story that Jesus has given. This lost son is unclean. In an unclean land, with unclean animals, 
entertained by actually eating this unclean food that the pigs only eat. And he considers this confession and everything from that point on becomes cleansing. He cleanses himself immediately just by confessing it all and getting it all out. You and I need to come to our senses. If you remember maybe two weeks ago, and I had some feedback on this because we went through Numbers 15. That was, and I felt this way, it was not a Joel Osteen sermon, I'll tell you that much. It, I, I, it was heavy for me. It, it's Numbers 15. If, you're not, if you weren't there two weeks, go read it. Um, it's, it was an unsettling sermon. Essentially, the point of it was, there's a broken law which you do by accident, and there's a broken law you do on purpose, which the Bible in Numbers 15 calls a high-handed sin. And Numbers 15 says there's no uh, pre-planned sacrifice for that. You're, you're in a lot of trouble. Like, it's not like, oh, I made a mistake, let me go sacrifice and clean that up. There's some sins that are really bad, high-handed, rebellious sins. Now, that's all prefaced so that we would actually appreciate, appreciate the Father in the story. That we would not assume, oh, I've heard the prodigal son before. Oh, I know how that one ends. Well, read Numbers 15 and remember what a high-handed sin is. And remember yourself. And remember all the knowing sins that you've poured out in your life. And now read, now read Luke 15. You have to read Numbers 15 before you read Luke 15. And then realize there is no reason in the world the Father should respond this way. There is not one good reason and the son knows that. And the best reason he can ever think of is just make me your slave. There is no way I could ever be your son again. If there was ever a high-handed sin, me approaching you that day saying, I wish you were dead and I could have all your things would be that sin. How do you feel when you've sinned against God? Don't ever forget this story. And so the son, he realized what he was doing. He knew when he demanded that inheritance that he was sinning knowingly. He knew how wrong it was to come to your father that way. He knew when he went to Las Vegas, quote unquote, to carouse and do whatever he wanted and spend all the money to drink and eat, that he was knowingly handing over his credit card knowingly doing that day in and day out. It takes a good bit of time to, to burn through one-third of a wealthy man's inheritance. And he did it well. But he did it every step of the way, not by accident. Every step of the way, technically spending off his father's death money. And then he realized he'd lift his hand before God and the Father. And his confession is, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. Heaven and you. Every sin we've ever committed is always against God. And sometimes against men. And so now he is lost. I'm not worthy. And by implication, he comes. He arose, came to his Father. In true repentance, he turned away and came from all his sin to his Father. And here it is, while still a long way off. The father's been looking. The father had his eyes on the horizon. For how many days, how many mornings did he come through his front door to look upon the eastern sun? Would his son come home? It's not as though the son just, around, just showed up and rounded a corner and saw his father there working around the farm. 
The Father saw him first. When you sin, do you realize he is looking at you? He is looking for you. He is looking for you to turn immediately. And so while he's still far way off, he saw him and had compassion. Whatever the oscillating was of anger and love and frustration and sorrow, that moment that he sees the silhouette of his son's body approaching him, immediately compassion floods over his soul. There is no anger mentioned at all in this story. There is no anger at all. And it rightly should be there. There should be frustration and gnashing of teeth. I can't believe he would come home after he did what he did to me. But nothing. Immediately. He felt compassion. He saw him and he felt compassion. And without a next pause in the sentence, he ran. He ran and embraced him and he kissed him. He fell on his neck and he held him. And as the story always goes, whenever you preach this text, it's the reality he's a wealthy old man dignified in society and he lift up his garment to run, which he would never do and have to do to spread his legs, to make a stride, and he doesn't care because that's his son and he loves him. And when you sin, do you understand this? Do you understand there is not one second you should be apart from God? In the midst of the most heinous sins of all, that one confession is this moment again and again and again, and he's there. He's looking. He is waiting. If you would but just turn, he is already there to run. And the prepackaged, pre-sealed confession that he cooked up, doesn't even get out of the wrapper. After hugging and embracing and kissing, the son gets a moment at least to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Only to be immediately interrupted by the father barking orders to his servants, get the best robe now. Put it on him. Get shoes for his feet. Get that ring and put it on his hand immediately. When guests would come to a dignitary's house, they had robes set aside for them as guests. And he says, go immediately and get the best one. Put a colorful, deep, warm, thick robe and cover all of his shame. He has been rolling around with the hogs. He is hungry. His clothes are tattered. And he doesn't even have any shoes. Slaves would never wear shoes in the ancient world. Sons wear shoes. If he were to be a slave, if he would have had the time to get to the second part of his confession, just pleading to maybe be a slave. But he doesn't even get that before the shoes are on his feet. And lastly, at all, the most beautiful of it is this ring that carries the family crest or the emblem by which he would stamp his envelopes as a seal of authority to say that this is from him. And his son gets to bear that name. He actually is brought back into having legal association with his father. That he is given the ring by which his father seals his own legal documents. And all those legal documents, again, are backed by one third less of value than when he first left. And immediately gives him back the ring. You can start signing my checks again. Can you imagine God's love for you? That after you have been so prodigal with all of his blessings in your life. And all of his grace upon you. And after you've wasted so much of his money and his time. On trifling things. That he gives you his checkbook. If you confess your sins, it's not a series of gradations back into God's good graces. 
If you were just to look his way, he would fall on your neck and kiss you in tears. Every time. This is the cleansing of confession. Would you see the Father that way? It closes, obviously, with the true gospel. That this is a parable inside the gospels, that is. And this story is similar but different than a more important story. Two stories begin a similar but different way. This one begins by saying there was a father who had two sons. One of them was obedient, yet judgmental and proud. And the second, the youngest, was a prodigal and rebellious. But the story of all stories is this. The story that changes the world. The story that all the nations will be telling again and again forever. Is that there is the father. And he has only had one son. And that one son is unlike the older son. He is merciful and gracious and forgiving. He is slow to not judge and always wanting to bring people home. He will throw a party and he will attend. But he is like the older son in this way. That the older son presumed to say something so ridiculous as, Everything, Father, you've commanded me, I've done. Who's ever had a kid for five minutes knows that's not true. But he is so inflated in himself, he thinks that's true. But it is true. Jesus has always obeyed the Father. This story, there is one son in which that verse makes sense. Where he could actually say, Father, everything you've given me to do, I have done. And all these sinners have come home, now let's celebrate. This story has two sons. There is a younger son who's rebellious and lifted up his hand against the father. Jesus, unlike that son, but like the younger son, and this is so beautiful to end with, that like the younger son, Jesus is like that. He is prodigal. There's a negative and positive connotation of prodigal. Prodigal to be wasting and spending so much. Or there's prodigal in being gracious and lavish in your gifts. And he is the prodigal son. The true prodigal son. That Jesus, like the younger son, he is not prodigal in his selfishness. He's prodigal in his sacrifice. He gave his life liberally, extravagantly, lavishly. Ephesians 1 says, in him redemption comes through his blood. That is the life he gave for you. That forgiveness and trespasses might be overcome by the riches of his grace, which it says he prodigally gave. He lavished it on us in all wisdom and truth. There is no need that you kill the fatted calf. That calf that's perfectly fed and never given hard labor so that its body is tender and tastes amazing, saved for one special occasion. Its whole life is just to be sacrificed to celebration for the return of us sinners. And Jesus, he's given us so much. He's prodigal in his grace. He lavishes on grace upon grace. More than you need. If you sin today, it's fine. If you sin tomorrow, there's more. There's more than you could ever imagine. He's lavished it upon us. This is the true story of one father and one son. This is our gospel. This is our life. This is the story that drives all of us and this church forever. Let us pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you. For your word, Lord, we thank you that in some measure this morning, by your spirit, you've given us a fresh glimpse of the Lord Jesus.
And Lord, may we never forget, though it is obviously a reality that we will, we will be here again next week. We must be fed regularly. Lord, let us never forget that your love is not like our love. That the image of that father running to his son, that that would drive everything we truly believe about you. About you in relation to us. About you in relation to all who are far off. And Father, may we never be like the older son, so self-righteous and slow to rejoice when sinners are converted to you.